Uh, before we get started here this morning, um, it's uh, Gideon Sunday, and every year we like to have a uh, representative from the Gideons come out and they get a chance to share a little bit about what the ministry is doing. Gideon is one of our uh, favorite ministries that we support and uh, thoroughly enjoy. I love the simplicity of the Gideons, of just getting God's word out. It's a wonderful group, and uh, we try to utilize them a lot as we can as a church. So we have uh, Robin Kirshner from the Hancock County Gideon Camp. He's going to come up and just share a little bit about what the Gideons are doing, and then after that we'll head into our message today, which is going to be in Romans 10. I'm going to go ahead and get your Bibles open. So without much further ado, uh, Robin's going to come up and share a little bit about the Lord's work with the Gideons. Hola. Some of you know what that is. Hello in Spanish. That's how my conversation started out one afternoon in Juarez, Mexico, where I got to meet Maria. Maria was a 12-year-old girl. I got to meet on a mission trip down to Juarez, Mexico, and I made sure as a good Gideon I took down a little Spanish testament took with me. God laid on my heart that week to make sure the gospel went with me and I could share that with the people of Juarez, Mexico, especially the youth there. It was kind of amazing each day we would start out at the church where we were staying at and wander through the little section of Juarez off in the, I believe it was the west, northwest corner of Juarez, Mexico. And we'd travel through the little section there and by the time we got down to the park we'd end up with 50, 60, 70 kids. It felt like the Pied Piper going down through town and uh, little kids would come down we'd play at the park and have a good time with them. The Lord also laid on a heart to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, kids of Juarez, Mexico. So I asked uh, Maria as I sat down and introduced myself in what broken Spanish I can speak that I remembered or forgot from high school. Uh, asked her if she would read from the Little Testament for me, and she agreed that she would do that. She started reading through there, and I was just sitting there being blessed, hearing her read God's Word. I knew there was an important part of this Little Testament, and that's in the back, where it shares the plan of salvation of Jesus Christ. So I asked her to turn to that and to read through that, it comes to a place where you have to make a decision. And I asked her if she understood what she had read and what was in that little testament. She didn't fully understand everything on that, but she did understand that God had died for her on the cross and that he would forgive her for her sins. She bowed her head and she prayed. And I couldn't keep up with her prayer, and I don't know. It didn't matter between me. It was between her and her God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When she got done with her prayer, she signed the back of that little testament that I gave to her. I was blessed to know that I have a sister in Christ in Maria in Juarez, Mexico now. So I'm pretty sure she's doing great with the Lord on her side and I was thrilled to uh, lead another one to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want to thank you as a church for being there and being part of Maria's life that you are helping get these little testaments in hands around the world, not just in the community around here. And stories like Maria continue to be played over and over and over. As Gideons do stand on the scriptures, Isaiah 55:11 says, So shall my word go forth out of my mouth, that shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and shall prosper whereunto I send it. We truly believe that every time I walk over to somebody and place that in their hand, we're making a lot change in somebody's life. That's the prayer we go with, with everyone that we put in their hands. And I'm glad you have the Gideons back every year. You understand the importance to us to come to share with you, that we can be accountable to you as Gideons, of what's going on in the Gideons' life. So we're continuing to do the ministry that you expect us to do, to be accountable and also to come and encourage you to continue to keep the 
the Gideons in your prayers and your financial support. I know you all know who the Gideons are, businessmen, associates. We're up there over 190,000 of us running around the earth sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in over 191 countries, serving you around the world. And our message is simple. The purpose of Gideons is to bring saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to men, women, boys, and girls around the world. Simple and basic. And I love that about the Gideons when I joined the Gideons, that that's what it was. We do accomplish that by two means. First of all is our personal lives. I have an excavating business. I get to play in the dirt. Even as a little kid, I still get to play in the dirt. Everybody says you just know the men from the boys by the size of their toys. I don't know. <laughs> but I carry the testaments in my vehicles. All the time I have these on me at all times. I found not to not just carry one because invariably if I give away one, I'm without one. So invariably I carry more and more of these with me in my personal vehicles. Wherever I walk in my daily walk in life, I have a personal worker's testament with me at all times because you never know when the opportunity that God's going to give you to share that with somebody around you. The second way is by putting these testaments and these Bibles around the world in avenues of travel wherever that may be, planes, trains, wherever we can get those in. Your camp in Henry County has been doing a very good job this year. Well over 3,000 testaments and Bibles around your county have been distributed this year. So they've been still busy and working. I share another testimony. Uh, I had the privilege of going down to Marion Prison, and I've worked with youth for, since I've been out of high school, actually. Uh, going on mission trips and going around whatever the youth are doing, I seem to be helping them with. We had the opportunity to go down to Marion Prison, and uh, I didn't know that I was going into a youth prison, but I was. God kind of surprised me that day, but it hurt my heart to walk into a prison where there was youth in there. But I knew God had a purpose for us to be there. Walked into the open courtyard that was there and noticed a young man on the bleachers out there, and he was up on the top just sitting there all huddled over and just rocking back and forth, and I could see he was under stress. I went up and sat down beside him and introduced myself, and he introduced himself as Johnny, and I asked him if I could share with him. I took out the little testament and asked him if I could read some from the back of this little testament a little bit, and he agreed that he would allow to do that. Now, we don't ask the story of what happens to them or anything or why they're in there or anything. Johnny said it was his first day in there, and he was scared to death. He didn't know what was going to happen with him. That He had nobody on the inside that he knew. He had very little family contact, and he was scared to death to be there. And I could see that by his demeanor. Well, I told him I could share Jesus Christ, and he could go through this time with him and through this struggle in his life, not knowing what was going on in his life, but knowing that Christ was the answer that he needed at that time. And I shared in the back of that little testament of what God could do for him, forgive him of his sins at that time in his life. Johnny bowed his head and accepted Christ as his personal Savior that day and took that little testament with him and stayed there in that prison. And I don't know what happened to Johnny. I do know they have a good follow-up program in the prison where they help men that have accepted Christ to help them continue to grow in their spiritual life. I heard rumor that the prison's now closed, that they don't have a youth prison there, but I don't know that for a fact. But uh, I know Johnny now has Jesus Christ as his personal Savior to go on from there. We're thankful, to, like I said, for this church and that we can be missionaries to this church going around the world and making a difference. Because we never know where the Lord's going to lead the Gideons or what's going to happen or what lives we're going to touch. I just read from our Gideon magazine last night of a a story in uh, Uganda where some Gideons traveled many miles to get to a school that was very isolated where they barely could get there by walking. They got there a little late that day and they had missed all the kids at the school because see in Uganda they could still go into the school. They got there a little late, missed all the kids and they were a little disappointed that maybe they had traveled that far and wasn't able to hand out them little testaments. The schoolmaster said don't worry. He rang a bell 
six to seven hundred kids came back to that school that day because they knew the importance of this little testament. And they, after handing out the little testaments, the school teacher went and brought them to the library. And in the library, there was just a handful of these little testaments in there. They said they knew the importance of these little testaments. And the Gideon that had been there opened it up, and where it was to sign it, there was a name signed in that. Under that, another name. Wherever there was an open space, where there was open pages, there was names signed all throughout that little testament. Hundreds and hundreds of names were signed in that little book. They knew the importance of this little testament in their school. Whereas a lot of times, that's the only book that that school has, is the little testaments or the Bibles that they are given. And I'm excited that uh, the Gideons do. Everything that is given to the Gideons, 100% of your support goes to the distribution and purchase of these testaments. Not an administrative cost, not anything else of other costs. It all goes to that. I know you're excited about the Gideons, and a lot of times you say, how can I help? How can I help? And I stand here truly in my heart to tell you that the most important thing you can do for the Gideons is pray for the Gideons and the script and the distribution and the people that these hands are put into. That is the most important thing you can do for the Gideons. Pray for us. I know the power of prayer. I've seen it in my life, and I know that you know the power of prayer is more important than any finances that you get to. Finances are important to us, too. That's what gets us out here. But uh, we're thankful for that. So when you go home today... Take this with you. Put this somewhere where you can remember to pray for the Gideon. Put it on your refrigerator if you can find it. I know mine's kind of hard to find sometimes with all the paperwork on there and such. Or somewhere or in your Bible or somewhere that you can remember to pray for the Gideons. That would be important to us. And if financially somewhere down the line you think you could help out the Gideons, there's an envelope in there that you can send at any time in your life. Last thing I want to share with you is the Gideon cards. They're back there in the rack. Don't be afraid to use those. Those are important to the Gideons. I'm here today. You financially helped us today. This goes a long way through the year to help us support the ministry of the Gideons. Those cards are back there for you. Please use them. And I just want to close with one statement. Thank you for making an eternal difference in somebody's life. I truly believe if you're on board with the Gideons that you've made an eternal difference in somebody's life somewhere around the world. And we truly believe that in our hearts that you did that. So I thank you for being there today and allowing me to share a little bit today with you and to be a church there helping us support the Gideons. Thank you. I want to thank Robin for coming out again. And if anybody has any questions about the Gideons or their ministry, we'll be available afterwards to help answer them and point you in the right direction. And also the church will be giving a gift to the Gideons to continue to support that ministry too. So, alrighty, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 this morning. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. I can always remember um, when I was young and going to church, anytime we had a, a speaker come in and kind of share something during, during the time of the message and the pastor got up then to teach afterwards, I always in the back of my mind thought that pastor better realize that speaker took up part of his time and that he doesn't get to go over the same amount that that speaker shared. Now that I'm a pastor, I realize that logic was wrong. So we'll be getting out a little later today. Um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. And Kind of an interesting message this morning as we're continuing our study here through the book of Romans. We've mentioned this before, but a little bit of background here. The first eight chapters in the book of Romans are very theological. It's, it's setting the basis and foundation of what the gospel is, what does it mean to be saved or only saved through Jesus Christ, and it lays that groundwork right there. Well, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, it uses an example of Israel as an example of someone that the gospel was given to, Israel then rejecting the gospel, and what does that mean? So as we go through the end of Romans 10 today and a chunk of Romans 11, you're going to be talking, I should say we're going to be talking about two different things. One of them is the role of Israel as a nation and them being saved, and also how does it apply to us when it comes to us spreading the gospel. And then once you get to Romans 12 in the next couple weeks here, Romans 12 on is really application and all that we do and how do we put this stuff into practice. So as we go through this today, we're going to be picking up here in verse 18 in Romans chapter 10. And then we're going to be talking once again about those two topics. We're going to intertwine them. 
Israel as a nation and them coming to know the gospel, but also for us, us spreading the gospel and the importance of that. And before we get started, let's just pray real quick. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. We ask for your blessing upon everything going in the back. Just need to see all those classrooms full of kids. And Lord, we just pray for this time right now in the sanctuary here, that you would open our eyes and ears through your spirit. And as always, Lord, you teach and we listen to everything that you have to say. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Alrighty. We left off last week right around verse 18. Where it says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and to the worlds, to the words, to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel it says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now the context of this is we're talking about the idea of being saved. That's what all last week was about. The whole message last week was about the simplicity of, are you saved? And if you are saved, are you telling other people about Christ? That is why we're here. That's the only reason that really matters in this world is to see people get saved. So often we get worked up about the little things at life, and some of you came in this morning and you got stresses at work, you got stresses in your marriage, you got stresses with your kids, and those little things are trying to become big things. And the whole scheme of eternity, the only thing that matters is, are people saved? Are they going to heaven or are they going to hell? That's all that matters. And this is the point that Paul is trying to get across here in Romans, is people need to hear. Verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Are people not hearing? And verse 18 makes it clear. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And I love that verse and this is why. Because I'll have people come up to me sometimes, sometimes out of deep concern and sometimes just to be antagonistic. And they'll talk about, okay, God of love. If there's a God of love, what about the person living in the middle of Africa that's never heard the gospel? Is that really fair that if something happens to them, they've never heard about Jesus? I like this verse because this verse just tells me right here in verse 18, that the words have gone to the ends of the world. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He can take the gospel message to anybody. And it goes back to what we said at the beginning of Romans 2 and Romans 1 verse 20, that creation is the greatest witnessing tool that God has ever given. What a blessing that is. To know that people can wake up every morning, wherever they're in the world, wake up and see the sun, they can see creation, and they can stop and realize as the Spirit speaks to their heart, there's something bigger than you are. And I firmly believe, and this is taught throughout the Bible, you see this in the book of Acts, if someone through the Spirit, has a genuine interest in learning about Christ, the Lord will arrange it for someone to come into their life, just like the Gideon speaker shared there. They are planting seeds all over that we don't even realize what's going on. God can connect A to B. I'm not worried about that in any way. If that's something that's really heavy on your heart, then maybe the Lord's leading you to support some missions, to get involved with that. If nothing else, pray. Pray for those people that are over there. Because the Lord will bring point A to point B. He'll bring those people together. And I trust that the words will go to the end of the world. That's what the Lord does. So they will hear. Okay, now let's move on though. Because now we start talking about Israel and the gospel message. And it says in verse 19, does Israel not know? See, Israel rejected. See, Jesus came for the Jews. So when the Jews rejected, the gospel message came to us, Gentiles. Gentiles or anybody that's not Jewish. So obviously a rhetorical question here. Well, did Israel ever get a shot? Did Israel ever get a chance to know? And Paul says, don't worry, God's working to get Israel's attention. How is he working to get Israel's attention? Look at verse 19. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. What's he talking about? He's talking about you and I. See, Israel rejected the gospel message. So since they rejected the gospel message, the message of Jesus then came to us, the Gentiles. And so since we accepted it, God says, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use the Gentiles coming to know Jesus as a way to make Israel 
jealous. The way I look at it is, we're the new girlfriend. And so it didn't work out between Jesus and the Jews. So now he brings a new girlfriend and he says, hey, do you see my new gal? They know me. They know that I died on the cross for their sins. He is using us to get Israel's attention. And before you think this point sounds a little absurd, trust me, when we get to the rest of chapter 11, this word jealousy is going to pop up again and again. God says, I will use you to make sure Israel comes to know Jesus. Because that's what matters here. Look at verse 20. I was found by those who did not seek me. We as a Gentile nation was not seeking Jesus. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. The prophecies of the Messiah were not given to us Gentiles. We as Gentiles were pagan heathens that weren't even worrying about who Jehovah was or who Israel were. God says, I'm going to use you to then be a light and a witness to the Jews. And what a blessing that is. And we won't be able to get into it today because we run out of time. But when you get to the end of Romans 11, God says, listen, right now you think it's good because you know me. He goes, just wait till Israel comes to know me. He goes, that's when the party really starts. He doesn't say it exactly like that, but you get the point, okay? Maybe in the New Living Translation it says that's where the party starts. I don't know, but I'm not putting down New Living Translation. But the point is, right now it's good. But when Israel comes to know Jesus, ha. Ah, all of eternity, we get to reap the blessings of that. If you've been with us in our Revelation study, we've been going through Revelation on Wednesday, and one of the things we've been talking about is Israel coming to know Christ. And for all of eternity, we get to reap the benefits and blessings of that. What an amazing thing that is. But he says to Israel, verse 21, all day long I've stretched out my, to my hands to a disobedient, contrary people. He hasn't given up on them. He's still stretching out his hands to them in mercy and grace and also in love. He's still doing it. Now, he also does that to us, too. I see, I look at verse 21, and I see a verse just full of mercy and grace. Here's the deal. You work with people that don't really know Christ. You may live with people that may not really know Christ. Your, your family may not really know Christ. And let's just be blunt and honest. It's frustrating. It's it difficult. question comes up in verse 21. Are you still stretching out your hands to them? Verse 21, are you still stretching out your hands to a disobedient, contrary people? Because the truth of the matter is sometimes when we get around people that don't know Christ, we get really, really frustrated with it. And instead of looking at it through the lens of grace and mercy and love, we look at it through the lens of, oh my goodness, these people just keep getting to me. They just keep, and it's just this frustration of, look who I have to work with, look what I have to deal with. And sometimes people call me and they'll talk about and they'll vent about a coworker or something like that, and I'll usually stop and ask them, is this person saved? Oh no, this person, there's no way this person's saved. And what do I always say then? You can't expect Christian behavior from a non-Christian person. Since they're not saved, they're acting like non-saved people. Not that we as believers are better. I don't want to make it sound that way at all. We're still a work in progress. But the point is, if they don't know Christ, they're going to act like they don't know Christ. So therefore, part of the reason we're there is to be a witness to them so they do start to know Christ. As it says in verse 21, are you still stretching out your hands to them? Are you still stretching out your hands to that disobedient, contrary people? It's frustrating. It gets very frustrating. It gets very difficult. But that's what Jesus set the example for us. Remember back in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not wait for us to get our act cleaned up before he came into our lives. He says, I will love you. Now, he may not be happy with our choices. He may not be happy with our lifestyle. But he still says, I love you so much that I'll die for you. And then he says, can you do the same? First John says, we don't even know what love is until we know God. Because God is love. And so true Christian love says, they frustrate me, they bother me, verse 21, but I will still stretch my hands out to them because I love them just like Jesus loves them. We have to be careful as Christians 
that we don't reach that point of hard-heartedness. It's easy for us to do that. Move on here, verse 1, one of chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? So the question comes up, is there any hope for Israel? Certainly not, meaning there is hope, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee to Baal. Even so then, as this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. God says, I'm still working on them. And he goes, to prove this point that Israel still has hope, he goes, look at me. He goes, I'm a Jew, I'm saved. And then he gives the example here, there's this remnant. Verse 5, there's this group that's still seeking Christ of the Jews, and that's still around today. There's a remnant of Jews still seeking the Lord, and amen to that. But there's a point that I want to bring out here for us. Did you catch this in verse 2? This is Elijah. Look what it says here in verse 2. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying. Now look at his response. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But did you see that word there in verse 2? How he pleads with God against Israel. Some translations actually translate that word complained. Elijah was not happy with Israel. This is not a prayer of, Lord, it's just me, and I just care so much about Israel that I want to see them get saved. This is a prayer of frustration. This is a prayer of a guy that was pretty ticked. This is a prayer of a guy that's complaining against the Jews, saying, it's just me. I'm the only one left. Have you ever reached that point? It's just me. No one else is doing anything, Lord. I'm the only one moving. I'm the only one working. No one else has the passion I do. No one else cares about the loss like I do. No one cares about this like I do. It's just me. I'm doing this all on my own. That was what Elijah's prayer was. Look at it one more time there in verse 3. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left. This guy's frustrated. So he's complaining to God about Israel in verse 2. Now, the reason I bring this up is sometimes we don't look at non-believers as future brothers and sisters in Christ. We look at non-believers as a pebble in our shoe that really, really annoy us. And Lord, can't you just return so we can be out of here? Lord, just get them out of the way. Why, how many times have we prayed that in our life? Lord, I work with all these people that are so difficult. Can't you move them? Maybe the Lord placed you there to be the light and witness to those people. Maybe the Lord put you there to be the light and a witness because no one else is a light in that factory, in that, in that school, in that business. And so God says, I put you there for a reason. So don't pray them out. Pray that your light can shine. See, we sometimes go to what I call Elijah mode, and we just complain, complain, complain about the world and the people and the non-believers. God says, that's why you're here. You're here because of people like that. To tell them about me, to show love, to be there. To go back to verse 21, to show mercy, to stretch out your hand to a disobedient and contrary people. It's tough. And sometimes we reach a point of wanting to give up. We want to be like Elijah. Lord, I'm the only one left. God says, I know, and I'm going to use you. Now, but the interesting thing about this, even though Elijah is complaining... God says, there's more going on than what you know. Verse 4, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal is a false god. God says, there's more going on. He goes, you don't know everything. See, this is the problem. Sometimes we think we have it all figured out. So when we think we have it all figured out, and it doesn't go the way we want or the way we think, we're left with this frustration. This is not the way it was supposed to be. And so, you know what? It was supposed to be like this. I joke with you guys a lot about um, birth order. 
But, you know, Elias, who's our firstborn, he's going to be seven here in uh, March. Um, if he doesn't already have an ulcer, he'll have one soon because he's always worried about what everybody else is doing. And he's always worried about the other boys. If Dad, do you know what they're doing? Dad, did you discipline them for that? And he's got this mindset of he wants to be in charge. And so I married a firstborn. Dawn's the same way. So I told Dawn recently, I said, I don't care, but one of you has to go. And I don't care which one it is, but I am not dealing with two of you. Because there's this mindset of this Elijah mindset of it's not working out the way it's supposed to. I mean, Elias is so legalistic that there's just no joy. And it's just not working out. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The rule says we can't do this. And you, and you just need to stop. And I tell Elias, I said, Elias, you've got to let it go. You've got to let it go. But it's just not working out the way it's supposed to. And it leads them to this deep point of frustration. Same thing happens here. Lord, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Do you know what you're doing? And God says, yeah, verse 4, I know what I'm doing. I have a group here that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. It's difficult like that, isn't it? It's difficult when you constantly have those little stones in your shoe. i got a guy out here at church that I just absolutely love, and it's really neat just to see what the Lord's doing in his life. But this subject comes up a lot. And what happens is almost any time he goes to a, a job, there's, there's always somebody that's... Um, rubbing him the wrong way, a frustrating person. And so I always tell him, I said, do you not realize the Lord is allowing that person at every, wherever you go, wherever you go, there's going to be one of those people because that's just what the Lord's going to do. He's allowing somebody like that into your life to teach you love and to teach you patience. It's, Can you love the unlovable? And how many times have we done that? We have changed jobs. We've changed places to get away from this personality. And then we go to the job and we find out now there's two of them that have that exact same personality. Because you know what? God's not mocked. You change jobs again, there's going to be three of them now. That's just the way he works. He's saying, I'm trying to teach you something. There's always going to be unlovable, verse 21, disobedient, contrary people. Can you still stretch your hand out to them and love them no matter what? Best thing to do is just learn the lesson, learn the teaching point, say, okay, God, I'll love everybody. Elijah had to learn that. He didn't know what was going on. But then takes us to this next part here, verse 5. There's always a remnant. There's always this small group of people that God likes to work with. Now, sometimes that doesn't make sense to me. But from Genesis to Revelation, he's always worked with small groups of people. When he decided to restart the earth after he hit reset after the flood, he started with just eight people. That's what he wanted to do. When he decided to free Israel as slaves from Egypt, he just used Moses and Aaron. Jumping ahead to the New Testament, when he decided to spread the gospel to the entire world, he used 12 men, and one of them betrayed him, so it was really only 11. That's just the way he does. He uses this small mindset. And that always, that always was a struggle for me. And then I heard a teaching point that really hit me. So a few years ago at a pastor's conference, because same thing happens out here. There's always, it seems like this, this small group of people. It's like, Lord, where, where's everything at? It's always the struggle. It's always the struggle. Can't you use more, Lord? You know, we'll sit here and we'll say, hey, the, the church needs help cleaning. The church needs help in the back of the Sunday school classroom. The church needs drivers for this. And there can be hundreds of people that come out, but you sit here and say, well, Lord, where is everybody? And so I heard this great teaching point, and I thought, how do we deal with this? The pastor gets up there, and he says, okay, pastors. He goes, how many of you need more volunteers? Back in the back. How many of you need volunteers to help with your Sunday school program? Oh, yeah. How many need more people to help clean? Yeah. How many need more help to do this? And he goes, here's the answer to that, and I'm all ready for this. Finally, we got an answer. He takes us to Matthew chapter 9, and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he says, pray to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers. Well, that's not the answer I want, you know? The answer he is saying is God always works with a small group and he uses that small group effectively to do big things. Now, that doesn't make sense to me. But this is what he's done from Genesis to Revelation. And in fact, if the group's too big, 
He'll actually step in and take care of it. Turn, if you will, to the book of Judges. I was thinking about this. We're going to go to Judges chapter 7. I was thinking about this today as uh, Robin was up here sharing about the Gideons. Um, and this was not planned, but we're going to talk about Gideon today. And before you think I'm putting down the Gideons, because now I'm kind of feeling a little awkward here, Gideon is a great guy. But when you really look at Gideon here in the book of Judges, it's kind of a wimp. I know, and I shouldn't say that on Gideon Sunday, but it's the truth. And in Judges 7, actually, as you guys are going to Judges 7, Gideon, when God calls Gideon, what's Gideon doing? Does anybody remember? Hiding. The Midianites were near. So Gideon, the best way to deal with the Midianites in Gideon's mind is I'm just going to go hide. I, Lord, raise up somebody else to deal with it. Well, the Lord raises up Gideon. Well, then God is calling Gideon to say, I'm going to use you to take care of this Midianite problem. Gideon doesn't want to do it. So Gideon says, okay, I'm going to put this fleece out and, and make the fleece wet but the ground dry. So God does it. So he goes the next day. Gideon still doesn't want to do this. Okay, now make the fleece dry and the ground wet. He doesn't want to do it. Here's this man that does not want to be used by God. Here's this man that does not want to be Israel's savior against the Midianites. He's doing everything he can to try to get out of it. Is that not you and I? Lord, he really needs to know you. I pray, Lord, that you would send somebody other than me to go tell him about Jesus. Lord, the church really needs help in this area. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up somebody else other than me to go fix that. That's what we do. Lord, send somebody else. God says, I want to use Gideon. So Gideon finally relents and says, okay, I'll be the man. I'll be the man. Well, see what happens here. Verse 3 of Judges chapter 7. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Now, I'm not really smart at this type of stuff. I never was in the military. But I'm just saying right now, verse 3, the army is 32,000 people. I don't think that makes a lot of sense to lose 22,000 people on the eve of a battle. You go from 32,000 down to 10,000. Once again, I never was in the military. But I also don't think this is the type of gun ho uh, pep speech that you want before you go into battle. Verse 3. Hey, whoever is fearful and afraid, if you just want to go back home right now, that's okay. I don't think that's what the best speech to do is, but that's what they do. And the army goes from 32,000 down to 10,000. Now, why would God do that? Jump back to verse 2. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God says your army's too big, Gideon, because if you go in with this big army and when you guys win, you're going to say, Look what we did. Too big. Lose the army. Now, if I'm Gideon at this point, I'm, I'm jumping ship. No. So the army's too big. If you guys win, you're going to say it was you. You've got to go from 32,000 down to 10,000. Well, now in verses 4 and 5, they do this thing of where you take a drink. God comes back and says, too many. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Too many. So go down and you do this thing with how they drink water in verses 4 and 5. And if one laps like a dog or if one bends a knee. So look what happened here. Verse 6, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. God says, now I'm taking the army of 10,000, now down to 300. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. This is how they're going to defeat the Midianites. 300 men who lap their water like dogs are going to go defeat the Midianites. Does that make any sense in any way whatsoever? I've even heard people teach on this that says, okay, what's the whole thing on taking a drink? I had a guy do this one time. He goes, think about this for a second. You have to get a drink of water out of the creek, so how do you do it? He goes, well, you'll probably get down on both knees and you put your mouth down to the creek. That, that's what you would do. Now, 
I'm not being disrespectful to anybody. Let's say it's difficult for you to get down on your knees. What will you do? You'll get down on one knee, and you'll just kind of reach over and grab some water with your hand and bring it up and lap your water in. And the guy said, the 300 that lapped their hands, these are the most out-of-shape ones. <laughs> they couldn't even get down on their knees. So they knew they couldn't get down on their knees, so they knew they couldn't get back up. So I'm like, I'm just going to get down one knee. And, you know, and just stick your hand in the water and try to get it. And God says, so I'm giving you 300 out-of-shape men that are now going to go fight the Midianites when you started out with 32,000. This showed that God says, I don't want a lot of people. As we've said out here numerous times before, if you would base Jesus on his numbers of earthly ministry, he was the biggest failure you've ever seen. Because to God, it's not about numbers. But to us, it's about numbers. One of the first questions I always get asked, always get asked as a pastor, how big's your church? How big's your church? I just say a million. I don't know. I can't count. So... It's just one of those things where it's all numbers. Well, God says, I want 300 of you. So he sends 300 to go fight the Midianites. And you know how the story goes from your um, Sunday school days. They take these pots with a candle in it, and they all break their pots so these lights shine around the Midianites, and they all scream this great scream, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. So it looks like there's thousands of people there that these lights would be like the head of hundreds of people. So it looks like there's all these people here. Look at verse 20. Then the three companies blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers that held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the three hundred blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Bethachea, towards Zerah, as far as the board of Abel, Malol, by Tada. Look at verse 22 one more time. Who won the battle? The Lord. Do you realize the Israelites didn't even come down to fight them? Midianites fought themselves out of confusion. So God takes an army. Well, first off, God takes a guy that didn't even want to do it. Then an army of 32,000 down to 10,000. An army of 10,000 down to 300. And then he sends you into battle and he says, don't even fight them. I'll take care of that. What's the point? God is trying so hard to prove to them, it's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. So bring this back now to Romans chapter 10. Excuse me, Romans chapter 11. Look now at verse 6. If it by grace... And it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What's he trying to say there in verse 6? He goes, it's all about grace. It's not you. It's me. Just like with Gideon. Gideon didn't do anything. It was all me. It's nothing to do with us. Nothing. It's all about grace. That's how someone gets saved, is grace. Someone does not get saved by our eloquent words. Someone gets saved because the word of God penetrates their heart and they choose to make a choice to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It actually has nothing to do with us. See, the problem was we still think it's us. He led me to this job because he knew I was the only one that could reach these people. No, he doesn't need you. He led me to be the teacher. He led me to lead worship. He led me to be in the back because he knew I was the only one talented enough. No, everybody is replaceable. We, we have back in the offices, we put up these... um got this dry erase board, and we put in permanent marker like a calendar, so that way we could keep track of all the upcoming events. And then we have the names of the staff members out here, and then beside those names, you can put the little notes that you need for them to know, et cetera, days that they need to offer, something like that. And so we were working on this, and somebody said, well, what's, what's write the staff members' names in, in permanent uh, marker? Because that way, when you write up there the stuff beside dry erase, it's easier to erase. And we said we're not putting the staff members' names in permanent marker because everybody is replaceable. So that was kind of a joke. Good golly, guys. Well, that one went right over the head. I mean, so we put the staff names in permanent marker. I thought it was a good point. Now I just feel really embarrassed. So the point is, just scratch it. Back to verse 6. It's grace. 
See, it's just all grace. So that's what it kind of comes down to, is it doesn't matter about us. We put so much emphasis on us, on me. My kids, they need to know Jesus, so I have to be there. My grandkids, my co-workers, my friends, my family. This ministry at church is built off of me. And then we run this burden. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. It comes down to, once again, verse 6. It's grace. Because if you're looking at it from the perspective of works, you're thinking that you can still do something. If anything, by the time we've gotten to Romans 11, have we not learned that it absolutely has nothing to do with us? Everybody is replaceable. God can use anybody at any time. And part of the beauty of the body of Christ is sometimes when the Lord raises up unforeseen people, you think, wow, I didn't think it'd be him. I didn't think it'd be her. But look how the Lord is using them. How difficult is that? How difficult is that for us to lay aside our plans and what we thought should happen for God to say, do you trust me? And quit working at it. Because that's what we try to do. We try to work at it. And really what we need to do is it says in Matthew chapter 9, pray to the Lord of the harvest and he will send out laborers. So Lord, you know the need that we have in the back. Lord, raise up somebody. Lord, you know the need that we have with worship. Lord, raise up somebody. Lord, you know the need that we have to minister to that group of people. Lord, raise up somebody. And it's not even about church. Maybe it's about work. Maybe it's about your kids. Maybe it's about your marriage. Lord, I need to fix my marriage. I need to fix my kids. And No. Lord, Work on our hearts to fix this. Lord, raise up somebody at work to come alongside to help spread the gospel. Lord, bring somebody into my son's life to plant seeds of Christ into them. Lord, speak to my husband on this. Lord, speak to my wife on this. Lord, you do the work, and I'll just sit in your grace. Does that mean that we do nothing? Of course not. Because part of our daily prayer should be, Lord, what can I do for you? Not that I have anything to bring, Lord, but use me. Lord, who can I share your good news with today? Lord, how can I show love to my spouse? Lord, how can I be a witness to my kids? Lord, I'm available for you to use in whatever capacity you call, at any time you call, and I want to be used by you, Lord. Because it's not me, it's you. As I've shared with you numerous times, when I get up in the morning, the first things I do is, Lord, today is your day. Your mercies are new every morning. How can I serve you? I used to get up every morning and say, okay, this is what I got to get done today. I got to contact this person. I got to write a card to this person. I got to email this person. No, Lord, this day is your day. How can I be used by you today? Because it's grace, not works. And if you try to carry this mentality that you can fix something, that you carry this mentality that you can do it, you're going to stress yourself out more than you can ever imagine. This is what I want to close with. Go, if you will, please, to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Great passage here from the words of Jesus for us just to think about. Now, before we start reading this passage in Matthew 11, I just want you to stop and think for a second. What, what burdens are you carrying right now? When you came into this building here today, what is heavy on your heart? Maybe it's a co-worker, a loved one, a family member that doesn't know Christ or doesn't know Christ as strong as you want and it just burdens you. Maybe it's something in your home life, in your marriage that's really burdening you. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's a health concern. Maybe it's a health issue. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just worry, fear, anxiety over many things. Whatever you have brought into this building that's burdening you and bringing you down, listen to the words of Jesus here in verse 28 of Matthew 11. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that. Look at this word, verse 28. I will give you rest. Verse 29. You will find rest for your souls. Why is it that we carry this burden on us? Lord, I have to do this. I have to reach this person. I have to fix this. No, you don't. Verse 28 again. 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest in no other place other than Jesus Christ. Verse 21, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I like to say it's let, let God do all the heavy lifting. Why do we burden ourselves? Why do we throw these things on our shoulders, things that we can't carry? And then we sit there and we allow worry, fear, and anxiety to overcome us. And then we have no rest in our souls, we have no rest in our life, and we have no joy, we have no peace, we have no nothing. So I encourage you today, whatever it is, remember these words of Christ in verses 28 through 30. Remember verse 6 from Romans 11. It's all about grace. It's all about, it's all about Jesus taking care of it, not us. If it was about works, it's not grace. And just like with Gideon, the Lord worked with somebody that maybe wasn't the best choice. And then God also used a very small group of people to accomplish something big and amazing. Is that why it would always be known what? It was the Lord and not us. Final thing I'm going to say. Did you catch this in Romans 10, verse 19? But I say, did Israel not know, first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. We talked about that passage, and we talked about how the Lord uses us to bring Jews to jealousy so they want to come to know Christ. And we sit there and we say, how cool is that? The Lord wants to use us to spread the gospel to the Jews. Did you catch in verse 19 the word that God uses to describe us? Look at the end of verse 19. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Like, wh wait a second. I think he just insulted me. Because God says you're a foolish nation. Now, he's not being mean. He's just reminding us. It's not you. Do you think you were that great and amazing that I raised you Gentiles up because you guys were so wonderful that you're the only ones that could go spread the gospel to the Jews? No, verse 19, you're a foolish nation. You're a foolish nation and I still love you. And that's the thing. We're still fools today. But if we're going to be fools, let's be fools for Christ and start realizing it's by his grace, his everything. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Marv, if you would come forward here for the final song.